As we look to the Lord in prayer to begin this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses from Isaiah 42. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as light to the nations. Father, we know that the light that flows through us is the light of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will continue to do your good work in our lives through your word so that we might be reflectors of the glory of Christ into the dark world in which you have placed us. We bow before you today as King and Lord. Ask your spirit to be our guide through our study of your word. And we ask, Lord, that you will bless throughout this property today in every Sunday school class and in the service that you will, your name will be lifted up, lives will be touched and changed, that the weak will be strengthened, that the discouraged will be encouraged, and in every way there will be a sense that God is here. And, Lord, as your name is proclaimed, and later we'll be praying for, for some of those who have shared time here with us and are now working for you in distant lands, we ask that you will anoint their hands and their speech and glorify your name through them this day. Be with those that are not with us this morning due to illness or whatever other reason. Touch their lives in a special way today too. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the book of 1 Samuel. We're looking today at the 13th chapter. I'd like to read, to begin with, the first seven verses. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the, and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people each to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw it, they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Sounds like a great situation, right? I mentioned to you at the end of class last time that as we looked at this next passage, we would uh, run into one of the sticky verses of Scripture. Not theologically sticky, but translation-wise sticky. Verse 1 has created considerable difficulties in its translation. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. Not much of a theological statement, of course, but nevertheless, there are some problems with, the, um, with that particular translation. The Hebrew here literally reads, Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. That's what the Hebrew literally says. Now, there are numerous instances in Scripture where you have this formula. 
so-and-so was so many years old, and then he reigned over Israel so-and-so many years. For example, in 2 Samuel 5.4, we read these words, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. Now, I just read to you uh, from the, this is the New American Standard Bible, which I teach from. I like it because in most instances, it's more literal in its translation to the original Hebrew. Uh, but we read that in that uh, first verse, and, and you'll notice it may in your pa uh, Bible too, uh, set the word 40, whichever translation have, you may have a different number there, uh, 40 or, and 30 are set in italics. And that's because those numbers are not in the Hebrew. So it says in, in the NASB that Saul was 40 and he reigned 32 years over Israel. Well, if you have the NIV, which probably many of you do have, we read that Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. So it's kind of like a <laughs> flip-flop of the numbers. The King James Version, which I don't know if any of you have the King James, King James Version says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, ta-da, 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 goes right on into the second verse. Now, the, there's a problem if you have the NIV. There's a very strong problem with the NIV translation because in verse 2, we discover that Saul had a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan commanded a portion of the Israelite army. Now, if Saul was only 30, he was at work pretty young, and so was Jonathan. He couldn't possibly have a son old enough to command a military unit if, he was only, if Saul was only 30. A and that would be true even if the event described wasn't at the very beginning of Saul's reign, but the passage of Scripture seems to indicate it was within the first two years of Saul's reign, so it couldn't have been more than 32. So even then, you know, if he had a child at 16, why then his child could be 16, but uh, Alexander the Great was maybe good enough to lead some troops at 16, but very few men in history could lead troops at age 16. So it's most likely that Jonathan was at least 20. And if Jonathan was 20, then Saul had to be at least double 20, which would be at least 40. And that's where we get the NASB translation. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign. Now. If we turn to, we aren't going to turn to Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 21, but Paul is preaching there, and he gives us the length of Saul's reign. He says, Saul reigned 40 years. Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, now Josephus lived at the time of Christ, and Josephus was a priest in the Jewish nation. He had served as priest in, in the city of Jotapa. He had actually commanded the defenses against the Romans in the Jewish war that took place between 66 and 73. Uh, he had been captured and uh, ingratiated himself with the Roman emperor, whose name was Vespasian. And then when he lived in Italy, Josephus, in order to defend the Jews, wrote a work called The Antiquities of the Jews. And he also wrote another work called The Wars of the Jews. In The Antiquities of the Jews, you find a parallel to the Old Testament. A sort of like a uh, amplified Old Testament, kind of, if, as you read along in his Antiquities of the Jews. And there, he also says that Saul reigned 40 years. So the best estimate that we can come up with for the reign of Saul is that Saul began his reign around 1050 B.C., and he ruled until about 1010 B.C. So that's a little over 3,000 years ago. Saul reigned in Israel. Now, some scholars believe that the best rendering of the passage is this. Saul reigned, bracket, 40 years. Not Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned over Israel two years. 
Now the two years do not represent the length of his reign. The two years are simply that he reigned two years at that moment. He had reigned two years at the moment that's being described here. He had been anointed two years before. And now in this second year, these events begin to transpire, which is what the King James tells us, except for in the King James, they insert the year one first, say he, he reigned one year and then he reigned two years, which you know, after a while begins to sound a little strange to us. But Hebrew doesn't always turn out in English exactly the way we'd like it to. We'd like it to. So that seems to be the best way to look at this. Saul was roughly 40 when uh, this event took place, and he had been reigning for a couple of years uh, when these events began to transpire. We, we do uh, find that through other passages of Scripture, his reign was about 40 years in total length. One of the primary reasons that the Israelites wanted a king was that he would fight their battles for them. They wanted a commander. They wanted someone who always had a standing army to deal with any crisis that arose. They were tired of this issue where, you know, tragedy would come their way, an invading army would come, and, and God would have to raise up a shofat, and then the shofat would have to raise up an army, and then they would try to deal with the invading enemy. Of course, they weren't thinking about the fact that all that problem was the result of their disobedience, but nevertheless. Uh, they wanted somebody who was Johnny on the spot. There's an invader, bang, the king's leading an army against the invaders. That's what they wanted. They wanted a standing army. Not a large one, of course. And, and as we read in this passage, it wasn't. It was 3,000 men. That's not a very big army, given the fact that a lot of times the invaders came in with considerably more than that. Now, this is Saul's first um, attempt to do this, because you remember the first battle that he fought. We read about that a while back, just previous chapter or so when he was dealing with the Ammonites, that he had to raise up a militia. And it was just like it was in the days of the Shofatim. He was like another judge, a Shofat. And he led Israel into this great victory over at Jabesh Gilead. But as a king now, he was expected to have veterans. He was expected to have men who were trained to be military fighters. They had a little experience at it. So we read that he raised or had possessed an army of 3,000 men. We're told also in this passage that this army was divided. 2,000 of the men were with Saul at Michmash, and 1,000 of the men were with his son, Jonathan, at Gibeah. Can't get that any higher. But anyway, here's Jerusalem inside this circle. It's inside that circle because Jerusalem did not belong to Israel at that time. Here's Michmash. The, the, there's a, the crest to the Judean and the Ephraimite highlands, there's a crest. Uh, the, the peaks tend to get to be the highest just before they drop into the, over the escarpment into the uh, Jordan Valley. And so Michmash is sort of in a craggy area, and, and we'll read about that as we get into the next chapter where it says that Jonathan was, had himself in between a couple of crags here to deal with the, with the enemy. And here's Gibeah. They're just a few mi miles apart here, actually. If you, if you go by road from Jerusalem to Michmash, it's only about 10 miles. And Gibeah and Michmash are only about half a dozen miles apart. So they're, they're not far apart. So you've got 2,000 men at Michmash, you've got 1,000 men at Gibeah. If you need to converge the forces, you can do it in less than two hours. So it's, it was an okay distribution of power. And it also said that uh, some of the men apparently were stationed over here at Bethel, which is about five miles away from Michmash. So right in this central area here, now, why that area? Because you see the name Benjamin? That's the tribal area of Benjamin. 
Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Gibeah was his hometown. There was no capital city in Israel in those days. There was no national home headquarters. And that will not happen until David comes along. And when David comes along, he will establish a capital. And for a while, David will live down here at Hebron. But Hebron's way off center for the nation. And so uh, David, in order to find a capital, will choose a city that I, I believe, of course, God inspired him to choose that particular city. But he will choose a city that did not belong to the Hebrews, and therefore they couldn't complain about him being, you know, playing favorites by choosing a capital in a particular area. You know, he was from the tribe of Judah, so he could have picked a capital city in Judah. He was, of course, born in Bethlehem. He could have picked Bethlehem. It wasn't much of a town, but he could have made it his capital. But instead, he chose the city here, Jerusalem, that was nobody, had not belonged to Israel. Now, what is very interesting is that the Baldriches have sent on some emails they've been getting that there are some leaders of the Islamic people over there who claim that the Jews have never really had anything to do with Jerusalem. <laughs> that Jerusalem's never been an important city to the Jews. Now, that's kind of like saying, the earth is flat, you know. <laughs> Nobody's ever been to the moon. I mean, it's kind of that mentality. We're, we're going to insist that this is the way it is, whatever's true. Don't bother me with the facts. Uh, this is the way I want it to be. But obviously Jerusalem became the capital. But Gibeah was as much a capital as there was at that time because at least it was Saul's hometown. So this is where the force, the, these two forces are, are headquartered. The last phrase of verse 2 may mean either that Saul had called up a bunch of men a large number of men. And then from this large number, he selected 3,000 to be the new army. Or it could mean that after the attack upon Jabesh Gilead, that he had sent all the men home, but he had kept 3,000 of those who had performed the best at the attack of Jabesh Gilead and asked them to become the core of his standing army. Whichever is the case, either is possible. Whatever it was, he has 3,000 men under his command. About halfway between the cities of Michmash and Gibeah, it doesn't show on here, and I don't think I can hold still enough, but right above the top of the G there was another little town called Geba. And we read previously in the 10th chapter that the Philistines maintained a garrison there at Geba. Philistines had this city, this, this garrison, right smack in the middle of the heart country of Israel. Now, was this an affront or what to Israel? To have a Philistine garrison right in the heart of their country within a few miles of Saul's hometown of Gibeah. So, we're told in this passage that Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines. Now, I don't think this was Jonathan's bright idea just to go off and do it on his own. He got permission from his father to do so. We know this because it says in verse 4, all Israel heard the news that Saul had smit, smitten the garrison of the Philistines. That is not a denial of who actually led the troops. It's simply saying who's in authority here. Saul's the king. So Saul smote the garrison through his son Jonathan. So Jonathan led the attack, but Saul was responsible. Sort of like Truman, you know, the buck stops here. So with the king, the buck stops. He's responsible for whatever transpires here. So Jonathan led his regiment of troops to wipe out the Philistine position. 
Now we're going to, as we move into the next couple of chapters, we're going to wonder how Israel did this. I think we always have to remember that when there is victory in Israel, God has inspired or God has empowered or God has led that victory usually. And I say that because later on we're going to discover that when the Israelite army gathered, almost none of them had swords because the Philistines had a, uh, what, what do you call it, uh, monopoly on uh, iron production and iron working. And they would not allow the Israelites to have any iron making technology, which meant Israel was still in the Bronze Age. Now bronze, you can kill somebody with bronze, there's no doubt about that. But steel and iron is far stronger than bronze when it comes to battle weapons. And so at the best Israel had uh, was bronze weapons and whatever iron weapons they could beg, borrow, or steal or capture from the, from the enemy. And so how his garrison slaughtered, his regiment slaughtered the Philistine garrison, we cannot know except we believe God led Jonathan, God empowered Jonathan, and God gave him the victory. Now it's very probable that the Philistine garrison was not terribly large, probably maybe 100, 200 men. So maybe overwhelmed by sheer numbers, we, we can't tell. But certainly from them, they would have captured some weapons of iron, you would think. Jonathan, it's a great name. The name Jonathan means Yahweh has given, or gift of Yahweh. As we discover, Jonathan was a man of courage, a man of vision, a man of superb character. You know, we have this old phrase in, in our English-American society, like father, like son. Well, not so in this case. Jonathan will turn out to be a far superior person than his father in terms of his character. We see that, of course, in, in his later relationships with David when he really loved David and, and was not jealous that David was going to take his place uh, as being king rather than Jonathan himself. And, of course, we know he dies tragically, but certainly uh, God was, was in all of that. Word soon reached Philistia that the garrison at Geba had been wiped out. And so the Philistines thought, how dare those Israelites wipe out our garrison? We'll teach them a lesson or two. And so they began to gather their forces to avenge their loss. News of the preparation of the Philistines to attack Saul caused Saul to send out an emergency call to all of Israel, calling up the um, reinforcements, I guess you could say, the militia in effect. Israel in those days is sort of like the Minutemen of the American Revolution. Um, whatever weapons they may have had, they kept, and, and when they were called up, they would grab their weapons and go out to war. They were not trained soldiers. They were militia. And so these individuals were called. And we discover as we read on through this passage, it wasn't, they, they acted like militia too. You go back to the American Revolution, and George Washington, of course, trained up a regular army because the militia had a tendency in the heat of battle to kind of evaporate, <laughs> disappear. And it took trained regulars to stand and, and you know, fight. And so it was with Israel, we'll discover here, as soon as the militia saw how large the Philistine force was, they hid everywhere they could find to hide. Again, there's a problem with verse 5. It says, now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. Now the latter phrase is very common. It's used all the time in scripture. Uh, sand that is on the seashore in abundance. It just means a lot. It's it, just a lot of people. In ancient Hebrew society, 
they didn't have our penchant for specific numbers. We, we have our, our society derives from the Greek tradition, and the Greeks were very analytical. Uh, the Greeks, even though they were mostly rationalists, were not totally rejecting of the idea of uh, empirical knowledge. But the ancient Hebrews, it was all about this, about that. It's like people who want to know how old really was Jesus when he began to preach. Well, the scripture says he was about 30. And, and did he, you know, when did he actually die? Well, about 35, maybe 38, somewhere in there. We don't really know because it's, even though the New Testament is written to us in Greek, you're still using Hebrew thinking here. And, and so in the Old Testament, you discover so many of the numbers are round and so many of the numbers are multiples of each other. 30s, 40s are uh, used a great deal. And so often they are, are, are just an estimate or a symbol more than a specific value. And so when it says 30,000 chariots, I, I have quite a few commentaries at home to check with, and every single commentary translated this 30. I, I mean 3,000, not 30,000. Now, in the Hebrew, all numbers in the text are written in words. They're not written in numbers. They didn't have numbers like we have. You know, we write 50 for 50. It was always written F-I-F-T-Y only in, in Hebrew. So the word here that's translated 30,000 is shaloshim elef. Elef means 1,000, and shaloshim shim means 30. But the difference between shaloshim and shaloshah is just a slight little modification in a Hebrew letter. And shaloshah is 3, and shaloshim is 30. And so they all believe that what happened, of course, in the multiple translations and the multiple renderings that it got slightly modified, and numbers apparently have several times in Scripture, because 30,000 is an unheard of number. There's no record anywhere of any force in history using 30,000 chariots, not even the Egyptians or the Persians, which were mighty forces. That, I mean, 30,000, Israel couldn't even get that many men out to battle half the time, let alone 30,000 chariots. Chariots were rather expensive uh, items of war in those days. They were the tanks of the battlefield at that particular time. The best figures we find amongst the Her Persians and the Egyptians is 5,000. So if these great powers, which had huge populations compared to little old Philistia and tremendous wealth compared to little old Philistia, uh, didn't launch more than 5,000, certainly the Philistines did not have 30,000 chariots. And there were several reasons for this. First of all, uh, as I've already alluded to, chariots were expensive to build and they were difficult to maintain. And secondly, they had limited value. The only use for a chariot is on relatively flat terrain. You can't use a chariot on a mountainside. You can't use a chariot in extremely rugged terrain. You, know, you, have, you fight on flat plains, like in Persia. You fight on flat plains, like in the, the, in the delta of, of Egypt. There wasn't that many horses. Yeah. They had a few stables around, you know, but the horse chariots, there wasn't that many. Right. Yeah, these two, two horses per chariot. Generally speaking, chariots were powered by two, sometimes three. Very rarely would they one horse pull a chariot. Could, but not too often. And what they raised, they wanted for food or for high products, you know, and the horses they didn't raise were that. Right, and that's why later on the kings of Israel, in fact earlier the kings of Israel were warned not to go down to Egypt to get horses. Because <laughs> they raised a, lot, raised a lot more horses in Egypt. 
There was a, yet a third reason, and that was the overkill factor. If you had 30,000 chariots trying to, to fight on the battlefield, can you imagine the chaos? Nobody knew who was coming or who was going. The battle fronts in those days were relatively small. I mean, today you might have a battlefront, well, like the Battle of the Bulge, you know. You had a 50-mile bulge coming down into, uh, through Belgium into France there. I mean, we're talking about battles where the battlefront might not be more than half a mile long. How would you, where, you can even put 30,000 chariots brought alongside each other without stretching a whole lot more than half a mile. So it's just uh, physically uh, an impossible thing. In addition, there's no record anywhere of any battle where chariots exceeded the number of cavalry. Now, I'm not going to tell you that the 6,000 horsemen here specifically meant cavalry, but if it did, that would be um, just a un, you know, totally out of balance kind of figure. I believe that the 6,000 horsemen are the two men in each chariot. So you have 3,000 chariots with two men in each chariot. You have 6,000 men that you don't have any real cavalries, you know, separate from the, the chariots here involved at all. So it seems the best interpretation here is that the Philistines fielded, fielded 3,000 two-man chariots, hence the 6,000 horsemen, and then a large force of infantry. This is much more in line with um, reality, with what could actually happen. So we have here are the Philistines putting in the field a major force. And this major force is going to <coughs> attempt to shatter the power of Saul. The, 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 um, yeah, they viewed Saul as a very arrogant man that he thinks he's going to attack one of their garrisons and get away from it. So they launched their attack straight at Michmash. Now this is Philistia here. The Phil Philistine plain is all along here. And the Philistines were headquartered primarily down here at Gaza and Gath and Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron. Those were the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. And so from this center here, they were launching attack up, uh, up the hills into Michmash. And another thing, if you've ever been to Israel, it's not so easy to drive a chariot <laughs> from the plains of Philistia up to the highlands of Judea. And it's rather doubtful the chariots would be terribly useful up there. The Israelites responded, of course, to Saul's call. And, and many of them came, but when they saw this overwhelming Philistine force coming up the hillside, they fled. And Scripture tells us they hid everywhere they could find. They hid in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. So Saul wasn't getting much help from his militia here. <laughs> in fact, we're going to discover his army wasn't much either by the time he got settled down. Some of them were told fled even over into Gilead. Gilead's on the other side over here. You see Gilead? This is the plateau of Gilead over here where the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were. And so uh, many of them apparently just, where am I at here? They just kept on going right on across the other side. Hey, the Philistines aren't going to cross the Jordan River, so we'll be okay over here. Saul retreated to Gilgal. Gilgal is down in the plain of Jordan down here. Again, as I mentioned to you before, it's at about 900 feet below sea level at uh, Gilgal, which is just outside of Jericho. And there we discover his army consisted of 600 men. And they're described as trembling. I wonder why. Of course, they saw the odds is overwhelming. Who knows how many Philistine infantry there was? It says like sand of the sea. It could be 20,000, 40,000, we, we don't know what the number was, but a whole lot more than 600. But when you think about that, let's go back to the book of Judges. 
and go to the man Gideon. And he was attacking a force of 150,000 with a force of 30-some thousand. And God said, that's too many. Remember, God whittled it down to 300. Ah, now we got the right number. 300 against 150,000. Wonderful odds. <laughs> yeah, wonderful odds if you're Almighty God. But if you're a military commander, you, you look rather <laughs> uh, despairingly at uh, 300 men against 150,000. Yet, obviously, God gave the victory. Well, let's read on in the next few verses here because there's a, a powerful truth that comes true here. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came about as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, and behold, that behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not asked favor of the Lord, and I have not asked favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It's strange, but verse 8 of chapter 13 reverts back to chapter 10, verse 8. In chapter 10, verse 8, we read, chapter 10, verse 8, is that what I want? Yeah, I was, all right. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Every source connects those two verses. The specific details of the two verses link them together. The confusion comes in the fact that at the end of chapter 11, both Saul and Samuel are at Gilgal before this time. Saul and Samuel are at Gilgal. After Saul, Samuel had made the statement, when you go down to Gilgal, wait seven days, and I'll come down and make sacrifices. So the question becomes, why did Saul's command to Samuel's command to Saul, back in verse 10, refer to the time here in chapter 13 rather than the time in chapter 11? Because chapter 13 seems to come after chapter 11 in terms of time, not just the order of the chapters here. And the answer is, we don't know. There's no way of really knowing how it uh, would be that Saul would know that this is the time Samuel was referring to rather than the time before when they were at Gilgal together. The, as you look at the two, of course, Saul and Samuel went to Gilgal together the first time in chapter 11. This is a time when Saul is there, he's waiting, and Samuel is not there. So uh, we understand that is probably why that these two are now connected. The point is, and this is the essential nature of this whole thing, that Samuel had instructed Saul to wait seven days, seven full days, for him to come, for Samuel to come, and to make the appropriate offerings. This was a test. It was specifically a test. Saul understood that, and Samuel understood this. You are to wait seven days. I will come and make the sacrifice. 
That is the word of God to you, Saul. It was a test. It was a test to see where Saul really placed his faith. It was a test to see would he be explicitly obedient or not to the word of God. Saul waited seven days, but not seven full days. How many of us in our lives have followed the letter of the law, but not quite? And that is exactly what Saul is doing. He did not wait the entire seven days. On the seventh day, he made these sacrifices. He became so impatient that he called the priests and he said, make the sacrifice. I can't wait any longer. The enemy is gathering. My forces are dissipating. Make the sacrifice. I can't wait any longer for Samuel to come. Fred Young is a commentator, and he says these things about this. Saul's sin was not in his making a sacrifice. David and Solomon offered sacrifices without being censured. His sin was disobedience to a particular command of Samuel, God through Samuel, to wait seven days. It was Saul's impatience that brought censure. One can well understand his human tendency toward fear. On the one hand, he saw his army fleeing at the least opportunity, and on the other, he saw the Philistines massing their territory and manpower. However, and this is a real key phrase here, man's extremity has always been God's opportunity. Israel won wars not with numerical superiority, but with men of dedicated valor. Samuel had believed that Saul could provide this type of courage and was discouraged at the king's lack of faith in the hour of crisis. The single failure of a great man brought the end to the hope of a lasting dynasty. Men who fail in the hour of decision prove faithless to the sacred trust and stand condemned before a holy God. The folly of Saul's action is highlighted by the fact that no sooner were the sacrifices completed than Samuel showed up on the scene. It was almost like Samuel was on the hillside watching. What will Saul do? It was a test. And Saul had to understand it was a test as well as Samuel knew that it was a test. And of course, what does Saul do? He walks, goes gallantly out there to greet Samuel, and the scripture says he blesses Samuel as if he had done nothing wrong. He had to know that he had violated the word of God through Samuel. And Samuel asked him with a very disappointed tone in his voice, he said, what have you done? And instantly, you know, Saul doesn't say, what, what, you know, like the typical eight-year-old, what, what, you know, what have I done? Saul immediately begins to give what he believes were compelling reasons, not excuses, but reasons. My army is shrinking daily. My men are fleeing. I have nothing left to fight with. And the forces are growing larger and larger at Michmash, and the Philistines are gathering to attack me. Is this not good reason, Samuel? Saul apparently did not see the incongruity in disobeying God's express word in order to gain God's blessing. <clears throat> Think about that for a minute. Disobeying God's word in order to get his blessing. In an attempt, of course, to make himself appear less guilty, Saul told Samuel, I, I had to force myself to, to order the burnt offering. I, I just had to force, I didn't want to do it, but I had to force myself to do it. You don't pull the wool over Samuel's eyes. He bought none of it. He told him 
He had played the part of a fool, and he had failed the test that could have established his dynasty on the throne. Jonathan would have been his successor. Jonathan would have been a good king in Israel, maybe as good as David. Two chapters later, we're going to find another test of Saul, and he fails that one too. That test, like this test, the essential, the essential nature of the test boils down to the phrase that is given to us in the 15th chapter, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. The proof of our fidelity and of our love to God is revealed in our obedience to His Word more than in adherence to any particular religious ritual. Daily submission to God's commands is a truer form of worship than any ceremony without that daily submission. The world's full of people who live for themselves all week long and then rush off to church or to Mass on Sunday to see if they can't placate God. Well, God, I'm here. You should be happy with me, uh, you know, what I did during the week. I'm human. You know, I'm just human. No sense of what it means to become or to live a godly life. In many artworks that come from the medieval world in other traditions, there's halos behind the heads of holy people. And the problem with that is it creates a sense that there are some people who are super holy and the rest of us can't make it. Well, I think all of us are to the place where we understand there's no such thing as a super holy person. There's no such thing as a person who is holier than thou. The, the halos are, are human creations. The scripture says we are all saints if we have been transformed by the blood of Christ. We joke about, of course, our halo being crooked or down around our neck instead of up on top of our head because of our, our, our foolishness. But we live in a day and age when ritual, ceremony, is supposed to make it okay, even if we don't know how to live or walk the godly life each day. I don't think God is honored by that. God wasn't honored by the burnt offerings that Saul made. To him, the burnt offerings stunk because Saul was acting in disobedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. What does God say about this to Israel later on? Well, there's a, you, you've read it before, but let me just turn to Amos chapter 5. God through the prophet says this, relative to Israel in the same kind of a situation. God says, I hate, I reject your festivals. I do not delight in your solemn assemblies. That, that means their prayer meetings. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. <laughs> That's how God is worshipped. God is not worshipped by, quote, music or, quote, preaching or, quote, this or, quote, that. God is worshipped by obedient people who act justly and righteously in this world. And that's what God is saying to Saul through Samuel. But Saul is hard of hearing. Saul is a hard heart. Saul will die horrendously on a battlefield, rejected of God and rejected of man because of his disobedience. And unfortunately, he will take with him his three sons, one of whom was Jonathan, who was a righteous man. We understand, for example, today, whatever God will do 
to this land because of the vileness which is pe pe perpetrating this land. And, and maybe, I, I don't know, maybe God will bring a great revival. I trust that will be true. But, but whatever God must do will include us. I mean, you know, if the nation suffers, we suffer. Jonathan, a righteous man, died on the same battlefield with his wicked father. But of course, it's in the end that matters. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, that's what matters. What happens in this life is, is not the primary thing. It's secondary in comparison. And yet, in our society, everybody lives for the moment. I shouldn't say everybody, but most of our society lives for the moment. What, what can I have today? What, can I, what big fun can I have today? Fun, you know. I was talking about one of my classes this past week. Fun. You know, the word's not even in the Bible. Fun? Well, you know, I, I know what it means, and all of us enjoy having you know, a good time in, in some situation. I suppose we call that fun, but, but that's not the goal of life. Or you might think so in American society, but not really. Uh, the goal of life is, is joy and peace and contentment, that deep-seated thing that comes from obedience to God. And everything else is stinks in the nostrils of God. Take away from me the noise of your songs, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Oh, I guess I better stop there and pick it up next week.